Recovery Elevator, episode 152. I wanted to drink, but I didn't want to appear to be the drunk girl. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 40.4 months. On today's podcast, we've got Jenna. She's from Colorado. She's 38 years old. She's a mother. And in her interview, she says she felt stuck and didn't know how to get out. In six days, I am going to be in Dallas and you can join us too. We're doing a recovery elevator social at the Residence Inn near Dallas DFW Airport. Go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash Dallas for more info and grab a ticket there. I cannot wait to meet you guys in person. It's going to be a lot of fun. Okay, let's get started. In today's podcast, I want to cover step three in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, again, I've said this on my podcast, we have no affiliation with AA. And I want to be clear, I don't want to sway, nudge, encourage you guys to attend an AA meeting. That is not the point of this. But I have realized that the majority of listeners have never been to an AA meeting. And it was also a recommendation from a couple of listeners to go through the steps. So this is step three. Episode 142 is step one. Episode 146 is step two. And here's step three. Step three reads as follows made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. This step involves making a decision to turn your life and your will over. This means you have acknowledged that your previous attempts to run your own life have failed. Step three in a nutshell means we're asking for help. Now this step simply asks that we make a decision that involves giving up control of our lives and hand it over to the God of our understanding. God of our understanding? Well, we covered this more in depth in the step two coverage, which is in episode 146. But to summarize that discussion, a God of our understanding can be anything. So keep that in mind. So according to the big book, it says that we must be convinced that a life run on self-will can hardly be a success. On that basis, we're almost always at collision with something or somebody. So in the big book, the third step is described in detail on pages 61 to 63. The big book uses the analogy of an actor who wants to run the whole show. This actor is trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players all in his own way. If only his arrangements would stay put, this actor could stay sober. Well, as you can imagine, one person trying to control, keyword control, all of these elements, it just doesn't work. Step three isn't necessarily hard because of the bulk of the workload. It's hard because of these two reasons. Number one, it's hard to ask for help. And number two, this step can be a blow to the ego. Why? Well, because this is where we come to the conclusion that our ideas suck. Usually this needs to be brought to our attention by someone else. Maybe that person can be me. But let me tell you, if your ideas on how to fix your drinking were good, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. Hell, if my solutions to my drinking problem were halfway decent, this podcast probably wouldn't exist because I'd be a normal drinker. But unfortunately, your ideas, I hate to break it to you, and my ideas either, they, well, they suck. The bulk of this step is recognizing just that, that our ideas and actions don't yield the results we want. Rarely, and probably never. In Cafe RE for the month of January, we are currently reading Russell Brand's book called Recovery. And I love how Russell Brand rephrases this step with a rhetorical question. Are you, on your own, going to unfuck yourself? 
If you're trying to answer that question, well, just stop. I don't want to sound patronizing because I try to answer that question on my own for five solid years. I'm just trying to help and save everybody a lot of time. Russell Brand also says, this step stripped of its divine powers boils down to you don't know what you're doing, you better make a decision to accept help. For most people, this is hard to admit and asking for help is uber hard. Keep in mind, while doing this step, don't be so hard on yourself. That is a consistent theme on this podcast, which is you must find a way to love yourself regardless of where you are in this journey. Pat yourself on the back, tell yourself, well, me, myself, and my ideas, we gave it a good go. So did the Buffalo Bills in the 90s, but it didn't work out as I planned, and it's time to ask for help. I like in Russell Brand's book how he talks about AA being a cult, which we've all heard before, but I love how he spins it. He says he doesn't feel like he's joined a cult by joining a 12-step program, but feels like he's been liberated by one. I assume he's referring to the massive amounts of people who drink poison on a regular basis. Yeah, that to me sounds more cultish than AA. Step three is a knowledge-seeking step. When working on step three, we take a look at how acting on self-will means behaving with the exclusion of any consideration for others, focusing only on what we want and ignoring the needs and feelings of others. While we were busy pursuing these impulses, we mostly left a path of mild upheaval to total destruction behind us, and we definitely lost touch with our conscience and HP. There are two prayers that are coupled to step three. First one is the serenity prayer, which most of you are familiar with. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And the third step prayer, found halfway down on page 63, reads like this. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Kind of a mouthful of that one, but you get the point. Now let's break down this step word for word. It starts off with the word made. This is an action word, to make or to do. This is an action step. Although the action is mostly intrinsic and knowledge-seeking, it's an extremely important action that requires a shift of thinking. Next up, decision to turn our will and lives over. Again, this is simply acknowledging that previous attempts to run your life have not been working. And the last part, God as we understood him. And here lies the exit strategy for a lot of people. Even though we covered this in step two, which again is episode 146, a lot of people see the word God and they run for the hills. But as the program explains... It can be anything you want. You can even insert the rock group Hanson with their great 1997 hit, Mbop. Ooh, that just gets me going every time. But jokes aside, this step is about asking for help. And who are we asking help from? Well, in my opinion and recommendation, it would be wise to seek help from a lot of different people. Your HP, perhaps a sponsor, family members, a doctor, a therapist, a counselor, but most importantly, you need to ask help from a group of people who have already successfully made this journey into sobriety. So how long should this step take to cover? You should be able to cover steps one, two, and three fairly quickly with a sponsor, perhaps an hour for each step. In fact, you've probably been working on the first step for years. I know I was. So it's these first three steps that can be completed relatively quickly. It's the fourth step, the next one, that requires some serious pen to paper and internal reflection. So in probably four to five to six episodes, we'll cover step four. And before we hear from Jenna, our interviewee, let's hear from Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. 
With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Jenna, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for asking, Jenna. And Jenna, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I've been sober since September 5th, 2014, so over three years. That is so awesome. Jenna, I'm a competitive guy, right? <laughs> and uh, But that is something that I don't want to ever beat you at. I don't want to be able to say, you know, hey, you had two more days of sobriety than I did, and now I've got more sobriety time. I don't ever want to be able to say that. So so nice job. That is so cool. Um, and I cannot wait yeah. to to hear more about your journey because – uh, you know, it, se- it seems like, you know, for me being sober from the f- you know, day one to year one, the, the, there's like three different chapters in my sobriety. And I'm excited to chat with you about what you've learned in those milestones. Um, but yeah, before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living. How old are you? Do you have a family? And what do you like to do for fun, Jenna? Well, I live in Colorado and I work in IT. I'm 38. I'm married and I have a 10-year-old daughter and living in Colorado, I like to keep up with the Joneses, so I do everything outdoors that I can, running, biking, skiing. I do also enjoy writing. I've started writing about my recovery and I love to cook and I try to write. Being in recovery and rediscovering Doing fun things in recovery is definitely, sometimes I just feel like I, everything is getting more and more exciting and I keep putting more and more on my plate of fun things to do. So. Well, that's a good thing because I remember I had to take a lot of things off my plate when it got to my tail end of drinking because I just couldn't handle much. So it probably feels right. better that way, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And Sometimes I, wanna... I just need to slow down. <laughs> oh, yeah. 100%. And that's, uh, it's funny yeah, I heard this a couple weeks ago, but like the more we slow down, the faster we can go, AKA meditation, right? It's like how Absolutely. My, day, my day is so busy. I have trouble blocking off 15 minutes for meditation. But when I find that I do that, it's, it's a two for one dividend. So I'll invest 15 minutes of my time. I get back 30 minutes of extra productivity or extra peace of mind in the day. And yeah, I mean, I'm I'll do an hour to get two hours of that, but it's, it's kind of a difficult concept that I couldn't wrap my head around in early sobriety. And that's kind of where, where I'm at now is I really want to like slow down more to take that extra step forward, which is, which is hard, but um, we'll get into that more in a bit, but let's, let's back it up a little bit. Jenna, when did you first realize that perhaps you had a drinking problem? Well, I definitely realized I had a problem years before I quit drinking because I realized that I was a secretive drinker. I would hide the amount that I drank. Um, I wanted to be the mom and the wife and the friend that appeared to be fine and didn't appear to overindulge. So I would drink extra behind the scenes and or before parties or really just hide the amount I was consuming. 
and that didn't seem normal. Can you tell me a um, specific time when you did just that? So I would have a friend over for dinner and a close friend, and we would be sharing a bottle of wine or drinking together, but I would be sneaking off to the bathroom to be drinking my box of wine in the bathroom or, say, my daughter's birthday party. I would be sneaking off to keep up my alcohol consumption while, while no one else would see what I was drinking. Mm-hmm. And when did you start drinking? I actually didn't start drinking until I was until like the middle of college. I didn't drink in high school. I mean, I had, but well, the first time I drank, I was 12 at home alone. And I, my mom had made a, um, some sort of alcoholic cake to with, to take to a friend's house to dinner. And I discovered the bottle of hard alcohol and poured some in a Coke and kept drinking it and got drunk um, by myself, uh, which definitely was how I continued to drink once I did really get into drinking. And I drank to the point of being fairly drunk that night, went to bed, but was too hungover to go to school the next day. Never really got caught, even though I think my mom was aware of that happening. Mm -hmm. But then I didn't, it didn't trigger the oh my God, I need to have this all the time. That really didn't happen until in college when I was working in a bar restaurant environment and drinking was the culture was when that I need to have alcohol every day really kicked in. But I had always been the good girl, getting good grades and doing what I thought everyone wanted me to do. So I never went to that like party girl phase. I wanted to drink, but I didn't want to appear to be the drunk girl. Actually, it was a hard I, I, I want to dive a little further into a, a segment in your drinking career here. You know, most alcoholics, most people, they have a, some of a very short period of time where they're normal drinkers, but some have years. And I was a normal drinker for probably five to six years. You know, started when I was 15 and probably when I was 22 is when the transition happened. But you know, it's not like, it's not an overnight thing. It was a slow uh, progression that was like one step ahead of me at each turn, but it was a really confusing time for me. And it sounds like, you know, you got ramped into it pretty quick because you were in a bar environment. What was that transition for you? Like when you're like, wait a second, I actually need this instead of wanting it. You know, well, and it, but I, I really didn't go to I wanted it all the time but I wasn't but I moderated it it was looking back now I can see that it wasn't fun because I was constantly thinking about it but it really wasn't I would say I was a moderate I moderated all through my 20s it wasn't until my late 20s um, when I had a series of traumatic experiences that I really started to use alcohol to just cope with life. Um, I had my father commit suicide while I was pregnant with my daughter, which from alcoholism. And then three years later, my husband had a traumatic brain injury. And so just having major emotional experiences was really when I started to, and just, and then being a mom with a young child too, and being home with her, 
all of those things happening at the same time was when alcohol really ramped up in the picture for me of just I can't deal with my life and alcohol is going to be my best friend. Yeah, I did not go through such traumatic experiences as that. However, when I faced difficulties, alcohol was there to lend a hand, but with strings attached. Um, and you mentioned coping skills, and that's something that um, I, I was developing. I was developing poor coping skills with alcohol. And talk to me more about that, you know, how you used alcohol to cope with negative, negative feelings. Yeah, I didn't want to feel the sadness or the anger or the fear around any of those experiences or even with being a mom I didn't want to feel any of the guilt or the shame about how I thought I was as a mother and so I would you know at first it was I'd start drinking to use alcohol to uh, it's going to make me feel better and I'm going to be in a good mood and then that would last for a couple seconds and then it would often result in me acting poorly because of drinking and having a short temper or um, just ignoring emotional feelings and then drinking more to deal with the shame and the guilt on how I'd acted, say, towards my daughter. But I definitely, with after my husband's accident, I used alcohol to, so he was in a in the hospital and then went through like a two month rehab and up in Denver. So we were away from home and I used alcohol during that time to, I would sit and while my daughter was napping, I'd sit and drink. And then I would write about, I was writing a blog about um, how he was doing and where we were at with his recovery to kind of keep everyone involved. And at that time, alcohol was my way to access my feelings. Like I'd have a couple glasses of wine and then I could sit and cry and write and be honest about how we were doing and I was doing and he was doing. And so it felt like this great tool to access my feelings, but it quickly progressed into this. I need it. It wasn't a tool. It was a necessity to either feel my feelings like during those times when I was alone and I wanted to write or to not feel anything all day long. It really didn't work very well. The progression. And and there was a time when I was playing guitar and drinking that I would say, I'm going to write the next stairway to heaven. And then fast forward five years, I would drink and I would just like the sound of my palm hitting the strings like thud, thud, thud. It stopped working. And the progression was painful. And like I mentioned earlier, it was always one step ahead of me and I couldn't figure it out. But tell me about the progression for you. Yeah, so there was a period of a a few months where I was, it would help me access, felt like it helped me access those feelings to write. And then after we got home and life kind of started to get back to normal, the access to the creative feelings stopped, but the drinking continued and it, and it became my excuse of, well, my husband's recovering from a traumatic brain injury and I don't feel like he's 100% present with his brain going through his healing process. So I need to check my brain out even more with alcohol because he's not here either. So I had lots of excuses like that and just that, you know, I need this. I've gone through this horrible traumatic emotional, um, it was 
scary and rough and we didn't know if he'd survive, if he'd recover, if anything. And and so I, you know, everyone, and I got a lot of validation of people like, oh yeah, I drink too if I went through that. But, but at the same time, I still was hiding, or I definitely was hiding at that time, how much I was really drinking. So from that point for five, for four or five years after his accident was when the drinking just continued to get worse and worse. And I just continued to drink more and it continued to cause um, more anxiety and depression and, you know, just make my life worse. But yet I couldn't possibly imagine my life without alcohol in those final years. A crossroads that many people, everybody arrives at (laughs) who gets gets sober is, yeah, I eventually got there too. It's like my life effing sucks with alcohol, but damned if I do, damned if I don't, there's no way I can live without alcohol. So Jenna, I have yet to meet anybody who has quit drinking that wasn't motivated by pain, right? It's not like I have alcohol and I'm also going to quit. That just says nobody ever. What was it was it a rock bottom moment on September 4th, 2014? Or what led up to you to making the decision? I know you hinted at it with the anxiety. You know, what was it that led you to quit drinking? Well, I had several bottoms before um, September um, 2014. The winter before, I had moments of not wanting to be on this planet anymore, not actually coming up with a plan to hurt myself, um, especially what I with what I had gone through with my dad killing himself, but being willing and open for some freak accident to take me out sounded like a good plan, just being at those moments of despair and really feeling trapped in those moments because I knew alcohol wasn't working for me, but nobody else knew that alcohol was the cause of my anxiety and depression and feeling so horrible. And I didn't, I was stuck. I didn't know how to out myself. And my husband knew I drank, but he didn't know how much I drank and that it was the cause of my problems. And so anxiety and depression and just panic attacks, the just lack of my ability to function in life just continued to go downhill throughout that whole year. And it wasn't until that summer we were back East visiting my husband's family and I had, you know, tra- like a good alcoholic. I had traveled with extra bottles of alcohol um, in my suitcase and to get me through the trip. And at the end of the trip, my suitcase full of empty bottles was discovered by my husband. And that was a very shame inducing moment and definitely the, oh dear, you know, I've been caught, I've been, and just, it was horrible, but it was that moment that needed to happen because I didn't have the strength to come clean myself with my problem. And it was a very, you know, earth shattering moment for both of us and while we were staying with his family. So that was complicated. And after that, I stayed sober for eight days and then on my own. And then I tried to start drinking again and was still hiding it. And it did, I had about three or four more weeks of trying to drink and 
not going very well. And in that period of time, my husband was encouraging me to talk to, to tell all my friends and family that I needed to quit drinking. And so I, of course, thought I needed to drink before I could have any of those conversations with my friends and family. So <laughs> given, yeah. I, yeah, I would, I would have a few drinks and then make those phone calls and, and have those conversations. And the biggest, scariest final one that I did was with my mom. And she lives here in the same town as I do. And I had lunch with her and I um, went and bought a bottle and I drank some of it and I met her for lunch and I told her, mom, I think I need to quit drinking. And I was so afraid of being judged. And, um, and she just reached across the table and grabbed my hand and said, are you ready? And I said, I don't know. And there was no judgment. There was no shame. It was just a hundred percent love from her. And I went home and drank a lot more of the bottle and passed out and woke up the next morning trying to find the bottle that I thought I had hidden quite well and spent the whole morning searching for that bottle. But my husband had found it and dumped it out. And I, once I finally started to go through with the hangover, I, that was when I surrendered and I had outed myself to enough people that knew. And now that my secret was out, it was just, I was ready to, and I was in the middle of the hangover. It was, I was ready and willing to, to stop. So that was my final bottom, hopefully my final bottom. In, in mid July of 2014, I got a DUI while driving to work, spent the night in the suicide proof jail cell and you know just like the plans that our addiction our minds can come up with it's like well i'm a big boy my family doesn't need to know about this and i I think i can keep this under wraps and then when i got released they're like yeah your brother's here to pick you up i was like my brother he lives in seattle which is 12 hour drive away hey how did he find out about it and how did he get here well since i you know said i had a plan for suicide they called immediate family that's like the best Thing that could have happened and it sounds like you getting right. outed or like when you were on the trip with your husband you know them him finding those bottles of vodka like the gig is starting to be up right like it's, yep. it's that moment when the rubber starts to hit the road whether you like it or not and it, and it sounds like you know when your mom reached across the table said are you ready you're like you don't you don't know but the next day you woke up and you were looking for that bottle but you just one day you just give up and you're like oh my god yeah I, I can't keep this too many people know and what was that like? It was scary. I mean, I was so afraid to feel the pain of living. I was afraid to feel the pain of the hangover. I was afraid to leave the house. I didn't because I didn't, I could have, I was, a. would been to, I believe, one meeting before that, which I drank before I went to. <laughs> And, you know, I knew, so I knew where the meeting was. I knew what time it was, but I was afraid to go to the meeting because I was afraid to drive past the liquor store. So I just laid on my couch and slept and, and really, and then, you know, the universe helped me out and my husband helped me out. He, we were supposed to go out of town that weekend while he was going to work a race um, in Glenwood Springs, I believe in and he was going to be working that and uh, I was just going to be there with our daughter and he called me and he said, you know, what do you think about spending the weekend with your mom 
rather than going um, with me. And I said, I think that's a really good idea. And so I spent about a week at my mom's house getting sober and my mom doesn't drink at all. And so it was a change in my routine. It was um, a safe place to be without alcohol in a loving environment. And that was huge in that first week of starting new habits and feeling safe and not being in a place with old triggers and having, you know, I didn't have a car or any ability to go buy alcohol. So that really helped start me on the road of just laying new pathways. Hey, two questions. Number one, did your mom make you chicken noodle soup? And number two, how liberating was it to be in an environment like that with your mom with nothing to hide? Oh, she's a vegetarian, so she didn't make me chicken noodle soup, but she did cook <laughs> me lots of healthy food. That was oh, really, there we go. I missed that. And it, I mean, it took me days to be able to really, to be able to eat. I was definitely at that point of not being able to eat much either. So, but just that, that love and that being cared for was, was huge. And I did, I felt it was scary though, to be, I, I didn't want to dive into the like, okay, now, you know, I have a problem and, and I'm trying to get sober, but she didn't push me into like, well, let's rehash the past. <laughs> like, Were you drunk this time? And were you drunk this time? We, she didn't, she didn't ask me to go anywhere that I wasn't ready to go to. She just um, was there for me for whatever I needed, but didn't push me at all, which was just what I needed because I had to come to that willingness on my own. Yeah. And sometimes that first week, you know, pushing ourselves is like putting our feet on the ground and standing up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. Your mom was, was there for you in that situation. And, and so how did you do it? How did you do it after that week moving forward? How'd you get 30 days, six months that first year? I started going to meetings. I had, at that time I had, a, I was going to counseling and I was going to meetings and I had a I have, a, I still have a sponsor. And so I tried pretty closely. I didn't get too um, detailed about it, but I did pretty close to 90 meetings in 90 days. And just to start new habits, I found a meeting that I really liked that was early in the morning. And it has a lot of people with a lot of, with decades of sobriety and, and just a lot of gratitude and, and peaceful and a great place to where I could see that people can do this for a long time. So I just pretty much would go to meetings. I would stay home and I just really tried to focus on myself. I mean, things like sitting at the dinner table once I was done eating was like torture in that, in those first few months. And, and so it was hard at home for a while, you know, my husband didn't get why everything seems really hard for me in life to just figure out how to get through life sober. And since I had hid my drinking, I had also been someone to just hide how I was really feeling. And so just trying to start learning how to be open and honest about what was really going on rather than taking a drink about something it, I could 
call, I called my sponsor every day and um, would tell her how I was really doing. If I couldn't tell my husband, I could at least tell her how I was really doing and just, and I started to make new friends in recovery. And my just after 30 days of sobriety, there was a women's retreat here. And I went to that, which was scary to go to that early in sobriety. But I did that. And I'm so grateful that I did that and made friends that I, women that I'm still close with. And that has been huge. It's just being I have I'm friends with men in the program but I'm definitely have a lot of really close female connections in the program that is amazing and and to suddenly have this community of people that understands me I spent so much of my life feeling alone and like people that didn't get me and to find this community of people where I can be open and honest about what's really going on with me and they're being open and honest about what's really going on with them and not this like real world where everyone walks around and pretends like everything's perfect and there's no problems and I'm doing great. I I can't function like that. I need this community of people that shares their their triumphs and their toughest days. So that's how I keep doing it is keeping yeah. that community. Okay. I, I've, I've heard there's a TED Talks, which uh, it's not my favorite TED Talks on addiction, but uh, the, the focal point behind it is the opposite of addiction is community. And more upon that is a genuine community where people can be open and honest. And like you mentioned, all we got to do is just open up Facebook and go to our public feed. Um, you mentioned the Joneses earlier. It's just all about keeping up with the Joneses. And then there's this, this public persona that people want to present, which is understandable, which is fine. But that community is essential, absolutely essential um, in, in, in sobriety. But there's another question I want to ask, which listeners in early sobriety who are trying to get sober, they might not like the answer to. And I would not have not liked the answer myself because. I'm impatient and we want everything now, but you mentioned like you had to learn how to sit at the table again. And at the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned that things are still getting better and you're finding more interests. Talk to me about the timeline and, and, and the patience. Cause I see people in, in cafe area and have conversations. They're like, Hey, I got, I got, I got a hundred days and life is better, but not that much better. Like, what do you have to say on that? Because it does keep getting better. Yeah, that first year was amazing and really hard all at the same time because I had to learn how to do everything without alcohol and with our culture where everything appears to revolve around alcohol and my life had revolved around alcohol that I had to learn how to cook dinner without a glass of wine. I had to learn how to sit at the dinner table or, or go out to a restaurant and not have a drink. And so having accountability with my sponsor and with my husband and with other, you know, being open and honest that, that people knew that I wasn't drinking was huge in all of those times where, and there were times in those first few months where the thought would creep in of like, oh, I could get away with having a drink tonight. And then another thought would creep in of like, but you're going to get a chip tomorrow or, you know, just something would save me from not picking up that drink and it, and it wasn't myself because I didn't have that strength yet. But that first year was a process of, you know, finding out that I could get through the tiniest thing that I used to drink over and then get through big, scary things like a 
fight with my husband or, you know, a, a community member committed suicide that was a, that had kids same age as my daughter. And um, that, and that was early in my sobriety. And that really triggered a lot of memories about my dad. And, and he had struggled, the um, guy that killed himself early in my sobriety had also struggled with addiction. And, and so getting through big things like that and the little things, it was hard in that first year and holidays and birthdays and everything was, I had to go through it with the, you know, thinking ahead and do I have a plan? And, and if I need to, you know, talking myself through if I need to speak up and leave or if I need to, I just need to take care of myself and I need to put my sobriety first. And so that first year was definitely the triumphs of like, wow, another thing that I got through without taking a drink over. And then even the fun things where, you know, you, I used to celebrate um, with a drink that finding that I didn't need to use alcohol to help myself have fun. And, and so, and then making new sober friends and new connections. And so the first year felt really new. And and then the second year became, okay, I've done this for a year. So now who am I? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I've used yeah. alcohol for my whole life. And I've gone through most of my life pretending, trying to be who I thought everyone else wanted me to be. And now I'm not using alcohol to make myself be fun or, you know, social or anything. And I'm trying to not be a people pleaser anymore. And so, you know, who the hell am I? And and that was a scary process too. (laughs) Yeah. Brene Brown has a bunch of books on that. So I hear you. Yeah. I definitely read the gifts of imperfection um, early in sobriety. And that was so powerful. That was on the tip of my tongue. In fact, that's our uh, Cafe Re book club for June of 2018. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, I've got these questions on, you know, if everybody does an interview on the podcast, they get emailed the questions. And for some people Mm -hmm. that have like eight days of sobriety, some of these questions aren't really applicable. So I'm excited to ask you some of these questions. And one of them is, you know, with over three years of sobriety, what's your proudest moment in sobriety, Jenna? My proudest moment is last year taking deciding that I was going to figure out who I really am and and I decided that I or I realized and I remembered that I like to write and I wanted to be express express myself creatively and so I actually took you know or you know of I think Anna David right she has a podcast and she's written a lot of books and I took her writing course and I wrote a book proposal and I submitted that and I'm so that was a very proud moment for me to get to in sobriety of being willing to share my story and putting myself out there creatively well congratulations that's that's awesome um you know and what do you what do you value most about a life without alcohol the amount of peace and serenity that I have today is just, it's invaluable is the, that was something that I was always searching for and seeking when I was drinking and I could, I thought alcohol helped me, but it didn't. And I have been able to um, develop a, a morning meditation routine and a yoga practice and a meditation, like I meditate daily and I have, you know, developing a spiritual practice and just having this conscious uh, consciousness and awareness in my daily life 
makes me able to be in my skin and walk around in this world. And, you know, and there's days where I want to still crawl out of my skin, but those days are much fewer and farther between. Yeah, I, I like what you said there. And, and listeners, it doesn't matter where you're at in sobriety. And it, it's it's confirmation for myself that you said, I'm developing, and that's the progressive tense to develop, is I'm still working with with my own meditation practices. And that means you don't have to have all the answers day one of sobriety. In fact, that's the beauty of it is it's always a work in progress. You could take what you want and leave the rest, but it's, it's pretty cool. There's the further I go down doing the recovery elevator podcast, I have like the first part of the podcast is kind of like me covering a topic. The further I go down, I'm like, Oh my God, there's so much that I don't know about this. It's, it's remarkable. And there's so much that I still need to try. And, and what is on your bucket list in, in recovery, Jenna? On my bucket list in recovery would be to get my memoir published. Um, that feels scary to even say that, but, but I will put that out there that that is on my um, bucket list to to be able to publish, you know, everything that I went through and, and how I got out of it and how my life is amazing beyond my wildest dreams at this point, you know, and I just feel like a normal average person, but I, but I'm okay being me today which is something I could never say when I was drinking. And I, I kind of just asked this question, but I did a video when I hit three years and year three to four for me is I want to be less serious. And even in the video I, I talk about, I'm going to put my poodle Ben on a motorcycle and jump it over a cornhole board. It's like, that's never going to happen. And I just want to laugh more. I want to take life less serious. And what are, what are some things um, you know, concepts that you want to explore more in sobriety from year three to year four? Um, well, I'm currently enrolled in Tommy Rosen Recovery 2.0 coaching program, and I am really excited. It's an eight-week program, and I'm really excited to see where that leads me, but I feel like just last year, I just started to scratch the surface of, you know, who am I? <laughs> So, and I feel like that's going to be a lifelong process of figuring out who I am and, and rediscovering that. And, and that's, that's what life is. But I want to continue to find creative ways to grow, but just growing as a person. I'm just, after getting my brain back, after all those years of drinking and then sobering up, and I just am so excited to be learning new things and exploring my you know, just creativity in my life and, and doing yoga and getting stronger. And, you know, it's sometimes it doesn't feel like there's enough hours in the day to get it all in, but then also making sure that I'm slowing down and taking care of myself at the same time. So having a 10 year old, it's definitely having, I'm really trying to be present in my daughter's life. And as she heads into these between teen years and just be there for her emotionally where I feel like I wasn't, you know, those first seven years of her life. So I love how you phrase that because I feel the same way as after getting my brain back. Cause if something wasn't muscle memory that I had learned well before my drinking ramped up, there's not a chance in hell I could learn how to, you know, knit or sew or like any, any task is just no chance. But Jenna, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I'm ready. Number one, what was your worst memory from drinking? 
That would be when we were in Vegas for my grandma's 90th birthday party, and I took my daughter and her cousin to the bathroom, and I got lost, and I didn't want to get back to the restaurant, and I was drunk, and that was why I got turned around and couldn't figure out how to get back to where the party was. To your defense, Thankfully, my aunt probably, found me. <laughs> you probably got lost in the casino, and they designed those so you do get lost. So don't don't, don't beat yourself up with that one. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> it was a scary moment. <laughs> I bet. We've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating that you couldn't drink normally? That would be Labor Day weekend of 2014. We were going camping and it's always my job to pack up the camper and I decided to drink before doing that and so by the time we got out to our campsite 90% of what we needed um, was not in the camper. (laughs) We got burgers but no grill. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) What's your plan in sobriety moving forward? I plan to just keep growing personally and yeah just keep just keep growing and learning is my plan in recovery. And I'm excited to ask you this one. What's your favorite resource in recovery? You know, it's what everyone doesn't want to hear, but it, what works for me is going to meetings and connecting with other people, especially women in recovery and going to places where I can hear other people's experience, strength, and hope. That's what keeps me sober. And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? to surrender and ask my higher power for help. Boom. And what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober? You can find your bottom at any time. You just need to put down the shovel and quit drinking and quit digging or quit drinking. (laughs) Well, true that. And before we depart, Jenna, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic gift line. You might be an alcoholic if when you are going through airport security, your Ziploc bag of liquid bottles are full of shampoo bottles full of vodka. I'm checking the book. Uh, Yeah, that one qualifies for sure. (laughs) Nice. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Um, Great way to spend my afternoon and getting to know you better. Thanks, Paul. You might be an alcoholic if this one comes from Alyssa. You might be an alcoholic if you had a serious moment in the grocery store, contemplating beverages when you thought, hmm, I don't like LaCroix, so uh, I guess that means I'm an alcoholic. Alyssa follows up in her email that she made it out alive, sober, and all is well. Nice job, Alyssa. If you have a You Might Be an Alcoholic if line you'd like to submit on the podcast, email me at paul at recoveryelevator.com. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. Uh-huh.